course, it always helps if I have the microphone on, right? Let's try it one more time. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> wow. Sounds like, sounds like your microphone just got turned on. Let's, uh, let's take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 26, taking a look. Uh, this morning at verses 6 through 11. The title of our message this morning is The Folly of Fear. The Folly of Fear. And obviously what I'm dealing with here and what we are dealing with here in our passage is fear of man rather than fear of God. We're in a section um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 26, where the focus is on Isaac. And let's see, the monitor should be saying something different than what it says, just a word to the wise up there. Um, it should be showing my PowerPoint. Hopefully you're able to get that. If not, there we go. I was going to say, if not, you know, we'll just have to do it the old-fashioned way, right? How did Paul the Apostle make it without PowerPoint, right? PowerPoint's just a tool. That's all it is. But the focus of Genesis chapter 26 is this man, Isaac. So it's a little bit different than things that we've read about earlier in the book of Genesis, where the focus was Abraham and Isaac was sort of a minor character. It's going to be a bit different than things we're going to read about later in the book of Genesis, where Jacob will be the main character and Isaac will be a minor character. But here in Genesis 26, like no other chapter I can think of in the Bible, Isaac, the son of promise, is the central figure. And so here is a breakdown, if you will, of Genesis chapter 26, and we made it all the way through verses 1 through 5 last time, where the covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant that was sworn by God to Abraham is now reconfirmed to Isaac following Abraham's death. So Isaac is now um, a receiver of that covenant as well in his own stead, so to speak, in his own right. We saw that last time in verses 1 through 5. And now we have, as the great theologian Yogi Berra says, it's deja vu all over again. Uh, A story, a historical account, you read it and you say, wait a minute, I thought we read that earlier in the book of Genesis. And this is where Isaac, like Abraham, capitulates to fear. And because he acquiesces to fear, we do what we typically do when we're afraid of man. We manufacture um, a tall tale. So, You look at verses 6 through 11, and here's sort of our outline as we take a look at verses 6 through 11. Notice, first of all, the occasion. The occasion of this event you can divide into two, the place and then the lie that was told. Notice, if you will, verse 6. 
So Isaac lived in a place called Gerar. We saw last time that Gerar is an actual place in the land of Israel. It's where the events of the prior chapter, verses 1 through 5, that we studied last week took place and transpired. And I always um, appreciate it when the Bible like in the book of Genesis, comes out and gives us actual people and places of geography because the Bible wants us to understand that this isn't story time. This is history time. These are real people, real events with real problems. And we've very sadly brainwashed a generation into thinking that the Bible really doesn't contain true history. If you want to get real history, you've got to go into the schooling system and learn from a historian. You guys just go ahead and do your religious thing on Sunday. But the truth of the matter is nothing could be further from the fact the Bible represents itself as a historical Document. Is it history just for the sake of history? No. It's there to create tremendous spiritual lessons. But these all arose out of historicity. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-documented facts of history. The resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb I'm speaking of, is an objective Fact. So are the patriarchal narratives, historical accounts that we are reading here. So Isaac is in Gerar, I think is how you pronounce that. And what you see in verse 7 is a lie. It says in verse 7, when the men of the, pla- when the, men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking that the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is very beautiful. So what happens here is essentially something that already happened to Abraham, his father, twice. Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham was alive in the prior chapters, manufactured this story two times, once before Pharaoh in Egypt, Genesis 12, and then a second time also before Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And what's interesting about Abraham's lie is at least there was some truth to it because Sarah was at least his half-sister. Genesis 20 verse 12 says, but she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he told a lie, and it was like a what we would call a white lie or halfway truth lie. You'll notice that Isaac doesn't even tell a partially true lie at all. He just blatantly lies. Which is very interesting, because where did Isaac pick up this tendency or this characteristic of telling In this case, not half-truths, but outright lies in the midst of pressure. Where did he learn that behavior? He learned it, obviously, I would think, from his father Abraham. One of the things that's very deceptive about sin is we think that when we sin and fall into patterns of sin, it just affects us. 
And that is not true. The sin that we fall into, persistent sins, have a tendency to also have a negative impact upon those within our sphere of influence. And there's no greater sphere of influence that you have as a human being on this planet than a parent to a child. God has put parents in authority over children. This is a principle that's as old as the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You'll see it in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 4, about train up a child. The book of Proverbs also. Chapter 22, around verse 6, train up a child in the way he shall go and he shall not depart thereof. The power that a parent has over a child is just tremendous. And it's not just the parent-child relationship, but all of us have spheres of influence, ministry spheres of influence, business spheres of influence, relational spheres of influence. And we have a tendency to think that, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and engage in a certain sin and it's just going to affect me, no big deal. Well, that's not how it works. Sin and sin's consequences and picking up on bad behaviors often impact those within our sphere of influence as well. This is why the Bible will say things like, don't keep close companionship with a person that's given over easily to anger, lest you become just like him. It's a different way of looking at sin. It's another deterrent to stay away from sin because sin has an influence on innocent people. Particularly a parent, there's always those little eyes watching. If uh, church attendance, for example, is not a priority for a person, a Christian, The children, when they reach a certain age, will see that characteristic in their parents and nine times out of ten, church attendance and spiritual discipline won't be part of that child's life either once that child reaches an age where they can begin to make their own choices and decisions. This is something that Isaac is doing. He's not just telling half lies. He's telling complete lies I would venture to say that he picked up that behavior by observing his father, Abraham, who twice was involved in this particular sin. You continue on there in verse 7, and it says, When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, a complete lie. Why did he do this? Well, the Bible says, for he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking that the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca. What is the problem here with Isaac is he is afraid. He is afraid of people. And because he is more afraid of people in this case than he is of God, He's walking outside of his calling. Lying, fibbing, telling tall tales, that has no business in the life of the Christian because God in the Ten Commandments, I think it's commandment number nine, 
says in Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why shouldn't we bear false witness against our neighbor? Because it's outside of who we are in God. God is truth. Jesus in John 14, verse 6 said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus gives different attributes of himself here. And he calls himself not just a truth, but the truth. What is the purpose of the church? Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 calls the church the pillar and the support of the truth. God is true. The church is supposed to be true. So, If we're walking in that calling connected to Jesus and his church, why would we be involved in any kind of deception? The New Testament, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 25, says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Why would I be involved in anything other than truth, since that's what Jesus is all about, the truth. But Isaac here just didn't tell the truth. The reason he didn't tell the truth is he was afraid. In fact, you look there at verse 7, the word afraid will jump right out at you. It is interesting the number of compromises that we will make as Christians when we're afraid. This is why the Bible over and over again is saying, do not fear. In fact, I was um, sort of shocked to look at this when I first began to study it. The Bible says, fear not, or don't fear, or some sort of similar phrase. It says it 365 times. Jesus, for example, is always telling his disciples not to be afraid. 365 times, that's convenient. That's one day for every day of the year. Once for every day of the year. Every day you wake up, God says, don't be afraid. Because God knows we we compromise. We, We do things when we are given over to fear. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6, God instructs Joshua, be strong and courageous. How can you do that when you're walking in fear? Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. It's not God's people that should be running, it's the wicked that run. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. And there are many, many things in my life that I feel that... That was all choreographed. I figured the fear stuff would weigh you down, and I wanted to... Lighten up things a little bit. Sarah, can you take this crazy thing and take it to There you go. Thank you. Where was I? What do you guys want to talk about today? 
There are many things in my life that I'm afraid to do. I'll just be honest with you. I feel God wants me to do it, and I'm afraid. And I know that when I'm given over to fear, that can't be the Holy Spirit inside of me. Because the Bible very clearly tells me God has not given us a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear is really an attribute of unbelievers. The book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, describes people in the lake of fire, unbelievers, and it describes their characteristics. And it says, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And every time I look at that, it always jumps out at me because he's mentioning here the characteristics of the unsaved. I think it would say murderers first, immorals first, but the very first thing he mentions is the cowardly. That's who the unbelievers are. They're afraid. God's people are not to walk in fear. You remember the parable of the talents? Remember the individual that received talent from the Lord, a talent, and he took it and buried it? And he was rebuked very strongly by Jesus when Jesus came back to settle accounts. Why did he bury his talent? Matthew 25, 25 tells you. The gentleman that buried his talent says, quote, And I was afraid. I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have is yours. And you'll notice that when the day of accounting came, that was not accepted as an excuse. The truth of the matter is everybody in this room is sitting on top of amazing gifts and talents. God has entrusted every single human being in this room with the three T's time, talent, and treasure. And he wants you to manage those on his behalf. And many times we don't manage those aggressively because we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of what people will say. We're afraid of this. We're afraid of that. And yet the Lord doesn't accept that as as an excuse. So Isaac was afraid. And he shouldn't have been afraid because he should have learned from the negative lesson of Abraham who twice told a half lie. Isaac is actually worse here because he's telling a complete lie because he is afraid. He is afraid of man. He is afraid of Abimelech. This is why the scripture gives us these negative examples of people. Romans 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Why do we have the negative example of Abraham for people like Isaac to learn from and not commit the same sin? Why do we have the negative example of Isaac for people like us to learn from? so that we do not commit the same sin. And God held Isaac 
to the record that he had received. Does God hold people to the written record that he has given? Yes, he does. You might remember Daniel chapter 5, verses 18 through 22, where Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, got involved in pride, and he became insensitive to the things of God. He should have known better, because he had the record of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar became involved in pride. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. God reduced him to an animal for seven years. When Belshazzar became involved in pride, God, through Daniel, said to Belshazzar, you should have learned the lesson from your father, Nebuchadnezzar. It says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, after sort of narrating everything that Nebuchadnezzar went through, God says to his son Belshazzar, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. In other words, you're you're responsible for the, the record that you have, because after all, at the end of the day, Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, To whom much is given, much is what? Much is expected. So Isaac commits a sin here. He commits a sin because he's afraid. He's afraid of man. And he knew better. And if he didn't know better, he should have known better. And yet he picked up this attribute from his father, Abraham. Abraham, when he was involved in this kind of activity, probably said to himself, this is just going to affect me and no one else. Uh, not so. You'll notice at the end of verse 7 why Isaac is afraid. His wife is so beautiful, Rebecca, end of verse 7, that he thinks that perhaps Abimelech is going to kill him and take his wife. So it is interesting that as you move through the book of Genesis, there's comments constantly as to the beauty of the wives of the patriarch. We saw patriarchs. We saw something similar related to Sarah. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 11, it says, It came about when he came near Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. So Abraham was afraid of what Pharaoh would do on account of Sarah's beauty. Isaac is afraid of what Abimelech will do on account of Sarah's beauty. And Sarah was a very beautiful person, as was Rebecca. So that raises an interesting question about beauty. Because beauty and the example of Sarah is actually used in the New Testament, to describe her beauty. What kind of person was she? Obviously, she was very physically beautiful. But the New Testament goes further than that and explains that she was internally a beautiful person as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, using the example of Sarah, says to women, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Is it 
okay for a woman or a man to make themselves look physically attractive. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that is not to be where your true beauty, or in the case of a man, handsomeness comes from. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way and in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And he's dealing with a situation where a woman is married to a man And that man is unsaved. How are you going to win that man to Christ? How are you going to win that unbelieving husband to Christ? It's going to be very easy when he sees in the woman an internal beauty that the Holy Spirit can produce. Of the two... External beauty and internal beauty, obviously the focus of the Christian should be internal beauty. Because physical beauty only lasts so long. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Uh, One you can't keep hold of. The other can be reproduced in a greater and greater sense, even as the physical body in terms of external appearance is not what it once was. There's a lot of legalistic denominations and movements within Christianity that say things like a woman shouldn't wear makeup, a woman shouldn't wear necklaces, she shouldn't wear earrings, and they try to base that on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and yet that's not what Peter is saying. A woman should emphasize her outer beauty with the understanding that really what's important is her, is her character. That's where true beauty comes from. And of inner character and outer beauty, outer beauty is on the way out because we're in bodies that are decaying as we speak. But the quiet, gentle spirit, inner beauty, Christ-like character is something that continues. And so I found that those points were important to emphasize in verse 7, which mentions Rebecca's beauty. Sarah and Rebecca were beautiful people physically, but that's not all they were. They had an internal character that was Christ-like. So there is the occasion, verses 6 and 7, the place, Gerar, the lie, described in verse 7, and now comes the discovery. You see that there in verse 8. It says, it came about when he had been there a long time, in other words, Isaac sojourning in Gerar, under this lie that he had told because he was afraid of man. 
It came about when he had been there for a long time, the Abimelech, the king of Gerar, the king of the Philistines, looked out through the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Isaac. Boy, you sure aren't, I'm sorry, his wife, Rebecca. Don't worry, you're not at a woke church when I said that. Gee, for our brother and sister, you sure, uh, I don't know, you sure treat her like you're married to her, not that she's your sister. Um, one of the things I'll mention to you is it says Abimelech, king of the Philistines. That is sort of a problem because the Philistines didn't settle in the land of Israel until much later in time. So many people will say, aha, the Bible has a mistake in it. The Bible has an error in it. But as I tried to mention last time, the Philistines living there could be speaking proleptically. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says the Philistines were not yet living in the area at the time, and so the term Philistines is used proleptically. What does that mean? Meaning that it is the place where the Philistines later settled. Other people think because these are documents that are being compiled and passed down, giving rise to the origin of the book of Genesis, that the term Philistines could have been added by a later scribe. That's a possibility. And I just bring that to your attention because you have other options on the table rather than just rushing to the conclusion that the Bible has a mistake in it. But the bottom line to the whole thing is Isaac is basically caught in his lie. And, of course, that's the problem with telling a lie. Once you tell a lie and you get caught, now you've got to tell another lie to get out of the first lie that you told. And when you study ethics, it's usually the second ethical violation that brings people down. It's not the first one. It's the cover-up. And you see that in politics constantly. Richard Nixon, it wasn't the problem. It was what he did to cover up the problem. And you see this with CEOs. You see this with business leaders. You see this um, in the area of organized religion. Leadership really gets into trouble, not so much when it lies, but when it tries to cover up their first lie. And so when you listen to business ethicists talk, they'll tell you that the best thing you could do when you're caught in this kind of problem is just to fess up, just to come clean. Because you get yourself into a lot worse of a problem when you try to cover up your first lie. It's not the the first thud that takes you out typically. It's the second thud. But when we lie, we have a tendency to think we're never going to get caught. And what the Bible actually says is you reap what you sow. The book of Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
You see, when you get involved in a sin, like lying, for example, you just put a seed into the ground. And seeds are going to sprout. Seeds are going to mature. Seeds are going to become plants or trees. And that's what we don't think of when we're involved in sin. We just think it's going to affect me and no one's going to know. And that's not the nature of sin. In fact, there's a verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, where it says your sin will find you out. I mean, these are all verses we need to meditate on as we're toying with or contemplating sin. We think it's just going to affect us. Wrong. It affects those within your sphere of influence. We think no one is ever going to discover our infraction. Wrong. That's not the nature of sowing and reaping. And we think the day of accountability will never come. Wrong. The day of accountability can come very, very fast and very, very quick. Your sin will find you out. Isaac is caught here in a basic lie. And this discovery leads to a confrontation as Abimelech now confronts Isaac. And the confrontation, verses 9 and 10, has three parts to it. There's an accusation, verse 9, an excuse, verse 9, and then a danger of the lie, verse 10. Notice, first of all, the accusation. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. Why then did you say she is my sister? Now, this is an accusation made by Abimelech. And the last time I was with you, I tried to communicate that the Abimelech mentioned here is not the same Abimelech of Genesis 20. Because Abimelech is not a personal name, it's sort of a dynastic title, like Pharaoh of Egypt. Charles Ryrie says Abimelech is a dynastic title, such as Pharaoh, because this incident, Genesis 26, occurred 97 years later than the incident in Genesis 20. The Abimelech mentioned here was probably not the same as the Abimelech spoken of back in chapter 20. So this is a dynastic name, Abimelech. And yet, despite the fact that this is a different person that's ruling, there was obviously a long dynastic remembrance because they could remember what happened when Abimelech and then before that, Pharaoh took Sarah, Sarah as his wife. God moved into those situations very aggressively. In Genesis 20, you might remember at the very end of the chapter that God shut off the productivity of the wombs of all of the women in Gerar. Because God means what he says and says what he means. He said to the patriarch Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And when Abimelech in chapter 20 took Sarah as his wife, he was sacrificing the future seed of the nation of Israel, leading to Isaac. 
And God says, all right, you sacrifice my seed, I'm going to sacrifice your seed. And all of the women in Gerar, under the dynastic authority of Abimelech, were not able to bear children until this situation was rectified. And it is interesting to me that this particular Abimelech, different person, had a dynastic memory of what happened in Genesis 20, 97 years earlier, and he is calling Isaac to an account on this. I remember what happened historically, and I don't want to make the same mistake. So why did you lie to me? It's basically what he's saying. You'll notice that Abimelech recognized Isaac in his own right. The promises of blessing and cursing apply to Isaac just like they did to his father, Abraham. So here comes the accusation. I hope you follow what's happening here. A pagan king is correcting a patriarch of God. That's the irony of all of this. So here comes Isaac's excuse. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? Here comes the excuse. And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. In other words, I'm afraid. And when you look at this carefully, verse 9, and you put it together with verse 7, it wasn't just fear in general that pushed Isaac in this direction. It was a fear of man. We make a lot of sinful choices when we're afraid. And we make worse sinful choices when we're more afraid of people than we are God. The book of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. In other words, if you're, if you're afraid of people then it's almost like your foot is moving into the proverbial bear trap. It's a trap. Boy, I can't uh, speak out too much about Christianity at the workplace. I might lose my job. Gee, I I can't be too aggressive in teaching the truth as a pastor on the Internet because I might get canceled. I might get censored. And yet God says, speak the truth. And at that point, I have to make a decision. Who am I more afraid of? Am I more afraid of God or am I more afraid of people? Well, yeah, but think think of the things they're going to post about you and what they're going to say about you. Oh, so you're more afraid of people than you are God himself. And you just moved into a snare. You just moved into a trap. And you'll start to do things and say things that you normally wouldn't say. I mean, it is fine to respect people and respect their authority, but if there's a conflict between what man wants you to do and what God wants you to do, you need to go with God. Because if the pressure from man is eclipsing your fear of God, you just moved into a snare. You're you're entrapped already. Jesus, when he sent out the twelve to preach the offer of the kingdom to Israel. And he sent them out without uh, proper resources for the long term. They were basically to live off those that they were that were influenced by their ministry. 
And then they were to move on from there to their next area of ministry. I mean, this was a tough assignment that Jesus gave them. And when he sent them out to do this, the twelve, in the land of Israel, he says something very interesting in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, who are you more afraid of? Your your boss that can take away your job or God himself who has the power to bring in eternal consequences? He goes on and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. So do not fear. You are much more valuable than many sparrows. Why, why, why are you spending so much of your time afraid of people? When God is going to take care of you anyway, because he takes care of the sparrows. And it's God who has the power not to just kill the body, but to take the soul itself and the body itself and sentence it to hell. I mean, what's the worst thing the world can do to you? They could take your job. They could take your life if you're living in a certain countries of the world. But those are small potatoes compared to what God can do. And so many times we're so focused on the problem, we're so focused on a person, we're so focused on a temporal consequence that we lose sight of this. And at the end of the day, we're more afraid of people than we are God himself, and we just walked into the bear trap. We just got ensnared. The folly of fear. And this is exactly what happened to Isaac, although he had the historical record and knew better or should have known better. I'm uh, reminded of what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. One of the great suffering churches that you read about in the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. For behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now here he's obviously not saying, be faithful unto death to prove you're a Christian. Their Christianity and their believing status is already assumed. But he wants to give them a reward above and beyond salvation at the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. A crown that will be given to all believers that endure trials. The crown of life, it's spoken of in James chapter 1, verse 12. What what an honor that would be at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, to be given that crown. Not for salvation, but as a reward given for a godly life. And Jesus says, you're not going to get it as long as you're constantly afraid of what the devil and his minions will do to you. As long as you're afraid of prison and as long as you're afraid of suffering from those 10 days, you will shrink back and you will not receive this reward. What a wonderful 
verse and set of verses to keep in mind as all of us under the pressure of the world system are constantly under pressure to compromise in some way by just not being true to our calling in Christ Jesus, being more afraid of man and man's reaction rather than God himself. You know, many times I'm ashamed to admit it. The Lord will put on my heart to evangelize somebody, the person sitting next to me on public transportation, for example. And there have been times where I have followed through in that. There have been other times where I haven't. And why haven't I? Because I was afraid of what they might think about me. Afraid about what they might might say about me. Gee, maybe they're going to think I'm one of those uh, crazy zealots out there. Maybe they're going to think I'm part of a cult. And so you withhold the gospel from someone that needs it because whether they believe it or not is heaven or hell for, for them, but we're so focused on ourselves and man's reaction to us that we don't really press into what God has called us to do. This is the mistake Isaac made. That's why I've entitled this message the, the, folly, the folly of Fear. And it's interesting that Abimelech himself seems to have a better understanding of the consequences than Isaac because he mentions in verse 10 the danger of the lie, the danger of the predicament you just put me in, Isaac, because you weren't honest with me. And you see that there in verse 10, it says, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. I know historically what happened in Genesis 20. I have the, I'm not the same Abimelech. Abimelech is just a dynastic title, but I have the dynastic record. I remember what happened to us and the women unable to conceive because of this same situation, Abimelech of that time taking Sarah as his wife. And there was a danger. And Abimelech of chapter 26 is aware of that. What was he aware of? He was aware of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God promised a curse upon those who cursed Israel. After all, Genesis 12, verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you believe that scripture is true? I tell you, as you study this and it's outworking in the pages of God's word, there's, there isn't something that happens more literally than the fulfillment of this passage. Right there in Genesis 20. God shut off the wombs, the productivity of the wombs of the women under Abimelech of that time period because Abimelech of that time period was jeopardizing God's seed. I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And that's why Abimelech of that time period says to Abraham, look at the mess you put me in. And now the same thing is happening with his son Isaac.
You might notice that two different Hebrew words for curse there in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses, one Hebrew word in brackets, the one who curses you, I will curse, second Hebrew word in brackets. You wouldn't see this in English, but in Hebrew, it's very clear that there is two different words. Why two different words? Because the first word is a reference to a light curse. Second word is a reference to a heavy curse. And what God is saying is if you lightly curse the nation of Israel and my people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then I will heavily curse you. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way. The first word for curse is kalal, which means to treat lightly, to hold in contempt, or to curse. To merely treat Abram and the Jews lightly is to incur the curse of God. And I think there's some people in the White House that need to read this and maybe have a little change of thought concerning American foreign policy. Can I get an amen on that? To merely treat Abraham and the Jews likely is to incur the curse of God. The second word for curse is used in this phrase, him that curses you, I will curse as Aror, if I'm pronouncing that right, from the Hebrew word Ara, which means to impose a barrier to ban. This is a much stronger word for curse than the first one in the phrase. Therefore, even a light curse against Abram or against the Jews will bring a heavier curse from God. Abimelech says, I know that's true because I know the dynastic record. So why did you put me in this position? I mean, you put me in a position where... You made everybody believe that she was your sister and any man could have come and and taken her and you would have brought on us a heavy curse like the one that was brought on Abimelech of Gerar back in Genesis 20. And so here is Abimelech concluding this paragraph by giving a charge. Verse 11, so Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife will surely be put to death. What an irony it is, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains, that a pagan has more spiritual sense than a patriarch. Fruchtenbaum writes, the irony irony here is that a pagan king condemned a patriarch for his sins. Abimelech of chapter 26 knew the dynastic record, but Isaac, for whatever reason, did not pay attention to the patriarchal record. And this is what we're like when we become afraid. We, we do things and say things that we wouldn't normally do, particularly if the fear involves a distortion of being more afraid of a person. And God himself, it becomes a snare, it becomes a trap, and Isaac walked right into it. There is a belief today in Calvinism that human beings are totally depraved. On the face of it, I agree with it. 
But what they mean by that is human beings are as wicked as they could possibly be. Henry Clarence Thiessen corrects this view of depravity when he says this does not mean that every sinner is devoid of all qualities pleasing to men, that he commits or is prone to every form of sin, or that he is bitterly opposed to God as it is possible for him to be. In other words, under the Calvinistic system, as it's being taught today, very aggressively, I might add, human beings are so rotten to the core that they don't even have the ability to respond to the gospel. So God has to regenerate them first by imparting to them the gift of faith so that they can believe because they don't even have the ability because of total depravity. Well, who gets regenerated then and who gets the gift of faith? Oh, if you're one of the elect, you get that. Well, what about the rest of the human race? Tough tacos. Too bad, so sad. Dave Hunt, in his critique of Calvinism, says, what kind of love is this? That's not what the Bible teaches when it means total depravity. What total depravity is not? Total depravity does not mean that man is as evil as he can possibly be and indulges every single sin. That should become obvious because here you have an Abimelech, a pagan with more spiritual understanding than a patriarch. They also teach that man is incapable of doing good things, as if unbelievers don't apply the brakes when they see a pedestrian in the crosswalk. What has happened in modern-day theology is depravity has been exaggerated to the point where it's even assumed that people can't even receive Christ when they come under the conviction of the Spirit. That's a distortion. And you can clearly see the distortion in stories and historical accounts like those involving Abimelech because Abimelech here, an unbeliever, demonstrates more spiritual sensitivity than Isaac himself. So when we use total depravity, we have to use it correctly. What does it actually mean? It doesn't mean that man is as evil as he can possibly be. It doesn't mean that man is incapable of doing good things. It doesn't mean that man in his lost state can't even believe the gospel. Well, what does it mean? It means that every area of man's being is touched by sin. That's what total means. It's a statement of extent rather than depth. There is no part of my being that hasn't been touched by original sin. It's affected my intellect, my conscience, my will, my deeds, uh, deeds, excuse me, my speech, my feet, my path, in other words, my heart, my body, my total being. And total depravity also means that man in his depraved state is incapable of doing anything to gain merit from God. He can do all the good deeds he wants and that doesn't make him right with God. 
In fact, there's only one thing that's going to make him right with God. And that's to respond by way of faith to God's free gift. Now that he can do. The Calvinistic understanding of total depravity is that man can't even do that. And that's nonsense. It's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is people can come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but God is not going to believe for them. Right now as I speak, John 16, verses 7 through 11, the world is under the convicting power of God. God is persuading men and women of their need to trust in the Savior for salvation. God will not believe for you. He will not give the gift of faith only to the chosen. That is an inflated view of depravity. What he's doing is he's persuading and he's convicting. But whether you come under the saving power of Jesus or not is your choice. You have the power, complete power, as an image bearer of God to hear this message and trust it. And you have the identical power to hear this message and reject it. And all of this talk about some have it and some don't because man is incapable of making a decision. It just doesn't pass biblical muster. It doesn't pass the smell test. And so our exhortation for people who are listening to this, either in the room, online, on archive after the fact, as the Spirit places them under conviction of their need to trust in the Savior is to respond through volition and place your faith, hope, and confidence for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul into the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. And once that happens, when you're no longer trusting in other sources or philosophies for salvation, but trusting exclusively in Jesus. And only you can make that decision. The Spirit will bring you to the point of decision, but He won't decide for you. This is what it means in the days of Noah where the Spirit was striving with man. And right now the Spirit is striving with people. He is convicting them of this reality and this truth. And your responsibility before God is to trust in what Jesus has done. You can do that right now as I am speaking. If you want more of an explanation on that, I will not be available after the service for reasons I'll explain. (laughs) But others will be. So our exhortation is for people to Trust in the Savior. So we've looked today at Isaac and Abimelech. We've seen the occasion, the discovery, the confrontation, and the charge. And next week we're going to be looking at the struggle for wells. And the struggle for your pastor who's going to try to turn that into a Christmas message of some kind. I have no idea how I'm going to do that. But let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these historical accounts and how they're not just fables and fiction, but they speak strategically into our lives. 
Help us to be people of truth as we walk out these principles this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.